Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. The social services sector, which is so vital to supporting people who are doing it the toughest, is doing it tough itself. Most groups lost volunteers through last year's lockdown and had not yet recovered their full capacity before we locked down again. Uh, Calls for food parcels and other supports have been reportedly huge since JobKeeper and the JobSeeker supplement ended too. Uh, Pigbody VCOS, the Victorian Council of Social Service, has been active in advocating for the sector and is, um, look, they just play such a huge role right now in representing the sector and also calling for more focus on wage subsidies for workers left without hours in this lockdown. Emma King is the VCOS CEO. Welcome to Triple R, Emma. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you. And thank you very much for having me. And I mean, the broader Victorian economy seemed to be recovering pretty well, um, all things considered. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, we really should focus in on how the social services sector is going, though, especially since the end of JobKeeper and JobSeeker. I mean, how are the many groups that you um, represent sort of faring at the moment? Look, it's a great question because what we've seen is that even before the pandemic, there was about 80% of community sector organisations that already couldn't meet demand. We've seen this interesting trend. So during um, the height of the pandemic and the height of lockdown, while the situation was really dire, it was interesting in terms of some of the the, um, people who might ordinarily require assistance from services, some of them didn't need it because they had an increased amount of job seeker coming in with a COVID supplement. Um, And instead we saw new people coming through the doors who needed help because they'd either lost work or they were surviving on JobKeeper, which was a much lower rate than they were used to having come in. Now, as we've seen JobKeeper end, JobSeeker is cut back to what it was. So that cushion has really disappeared and um, we're seeing people you know, either lose their jobs and now we're seeing, for example, in the last few weeks, you know, casuals not get their shifts and all those sorts of things as well. Services are inundated and we can see that um, it's a very visual thing in many ways. Um, you know, for example, when you look at the images of people who are lining up around the block for food, uh, from, you know, for food banks, resources in the city. Um, and then, so there's a component, if you like, that's, that's quite visual. You can see it even though, you know, people have to literally line up for help and for food parcels and those sorts of things. And then there's a whole lot of people who are just like, they don't have money to be able to pay for medication, to be able to pay for the bill. And they're literally going, well, do I buy food or do I turn my lights on? They're the sort of decisions people are having to make. So community sector organisations are doing everything they can to step up and help people, but the demand is it's overwhelming. And what's been your sense, you know, over the past week and a bit as we've experienced this lockdown again in Victoria and now obviously particularly in Melbourne, what's your sense of how that's been, I guess, managed um, by both the state and federal government and the types of uh, debate um, and dialogue, I suppose, between those two levels of government? Look, I think it's been really interesting. I've seen the state government step up really quickly and looking at them giving their subsidies to business um, and, and quickly coming back in the second week of lockdown and confirming straight away that those subsidies would be in place again. Uh, I think that it would be fair to say that is a contrast to the federal government in the sense of, you know, that for a long while we heard the sort of the mantra around, well, you know, 
Um, it's the state's decision to go into lockdown kind of over to you. And then we saw the payment um, come in last week, which people can't even apply for until tomorrow. And that being, you know, the $500 a week if you work more than 20 hours um, paid weekly after seven days of lockdown and $325 if you work fewer. But also there's a, you know, good basically... And I don't want to sound overly negative because I hope a lot of listeners who need that help can actually get it because it is something and it's better than nothing. But I tell you, the criteria around being able to access that money is um, it's, the eligibility is very, very narrow. Uh, in terms of, you know, you've, you've got to, um, you know, bad luck if you've been saving and you've got $10,000 in liquid assets, bad luck if you're getting some other form of welfare support. So we heard an example yesterday of um, a single mum who gets $48 a week in assistance from the Commonwealth. Um, she's not eligible for this money, despite the fact that she's lost shifts at work. Um, so there's but just to give an example, there's a whole lot of other people who are falling through the gap. So, again, um, you know, migrant workers and international students who, who don't have, um, who are not an Australian resident, for example. So, it's, I think that it is really stark. And one of the things that stands out to me is that when we were in the midst of the lockdowns last year and in the midst of the pandemic, um, we, you know, there was that mantra from the federal government around, you know, we're all in this together. I would say this time around, it just doesn't—it doesn't feel like that. Um, you know, we're, we're not—we're not seeing that language. We're certainly not seeing those actions. And I think we've also um, heard this idea that the, you know, federally speaking, um, Victoria has drawn, you know, a huge amount more support than other states, which seems obvious. Seems that we had such an mm. an epic lockdown last year. But I mean, what was your sense when you hear that sort of rhetoric coupled with the kind of payment that was provided? Emma? Uh, look, I, I think it's really hard not to feel angry, to be honest, because there's a part around... I, I feel like it's very tone-deaf, and I think it's incredibly disappointing when, um, you know, our federal treasurer, for example, is Victorian. Surely, you know, when you look at the, the literal pain that's on the ground and the fact that the people are going without food, they're going without assistance... And really, surely our, our job here is actually to say, let's make sure there is a cushion to protect people during what is an incredibly challenging time. It's already taking a significant toll on mental health of people who've got a job and those sorts of things, let alone for those who are having the support ripped away from underneath them. And, you know, if we could give that support to people, we've got to be able to focus in on, actually, let's get everyone vaccinated. Um, let's do everything we can to make sure that everyone is vaccinated, um, particularly those, you know, we've got the issues, for example, in aged care and disability, etc. Surely, if we've learnt nothing, like people, need, we've got to be able to make sure people get vaccinated. And also, some of the other things that really help in terms of the QR codes and those sorts of things, so that we can do the contact tracing really, really quickly, and also have the sort of the plan B. Because one other thing we've seen play out during this time is that digital divide, and we know that um, that primarily comes down to income. There's other reasons that play out in terms of why people there's a digital divide, but you know, not everyone has a phone. Not everyone. There's a huge number of people who don't have the internet, etc., at home. So if you because if you don't have enough money and you don't have um, internet access and you don't have a device and you can't rely on those other forms of support, well, it's then very, very challenging at the moment about being able to even access support in the first place or find out key information around, you know, where do you get your vaccinations? Um, how do you scan in for a QR code? I took one of my family members for a COVID test yesterday now and one of the things you had to do was actually log in and get your information before 
you went. Now, to be honest, we hadn't realised that and had just gone down and the staff there were really great in helping us. But it's really tricky if you don't have digital devices. They're basically an essential service in the same way. Well, yeah, you can't go into the supermarket without one now. You can't. And um, I know that some of the the supermarkets have got sort of pen and paper, et cetera, to help people who don't have it. But we really need those processes in place. And it just struck me yesterday because, you know, the minute anyone gets a sniffle, they're down to get a COVID test, basically, um, which I think is how it should be. But that was a real shift from the last time that I'd certainly been down there. So I think that digital divide is that's been absolutely magnified during this time as well and something that really needs to be addressed. Emma King is with us. She's the CEO of Victorian Council of Social Services and talking about um, social services here in Victoria, obviously in the midst of our lockdown here and, and what kind of supports might be available for people doing it tough. And I guess reflecting on some of those issues that you've just outlined, Emma, I mean, we saw last year, uh, you know, it, in, in a lot of ways, a great deal of success with how Australia managed the pandemic in comparison to countries around the world with obviously the, the JobKeeper wage supplement and the, um, the, the JobSeeker um, coronavirus supplement as well. And, I mean, there were some criticisms about the JobSeeker supplement in particular not being as well targeted as it could have been and, you know, some very large companies receiving that when they probably shouldn't have. But, I mean, now we've got very targeted payments for people in Victoria and you've outlined the very strict eligibility criteria, which could be very difficult, at least, to navigate for people and difficult to actually receive those payments and, and work out if you are, in fact, eligible. Does this raise a really significant issue, do you think, for how we manage the pandemic going forward? So we kind of did some things right in the beginning, um, but now as the vaccine rollout kind of stumbles and stutters along and we see different hotspots emerge, um, why is it that we're having these challenges having in some ways been kind of ahead of the game? Oh, I think that's a really great question, and it does go to the. Um, I think we have to, you know, given that you know we're living through a pandemic, certainly not something I've experienced in my lifetime. And there's a part around looking at first time round, like what did we get right, but also what did we get wrong, and being upfront about rather than having a crack at someone because we got it wrong, let's look at what we learned from it. So therefore, what do we fix? Um, and also the what did we get right. So I I think one of the interesting things is, as you say, JobKeeper was far from perfect, but the intent was really good about keeping people connected to their workplaces, etc. And thinking about saying, well, actually, we're seeing the really devastating impact of that being taken away and it hitting really hard. And I think it's, as you say, it's about that. Well, therefore, how do we manage the pandemic? So what things do we need to put in place really fast and we know we need to put in place really quickly? You know, if we've learned nothing um, I, I I just think if we, if we look back and we think actually what are some of the things that worked well so we had the increased job seeker the inter- increased job keeper we saw particularly actually those sort of the the um, community sector organisations, and I'm thinking as well as sort of the grassroots community sector organisations, do really well in challenging circumstances. So staying connected to their communities through a time that was pretty hard during lockdown, but doing their very best um, to do that. So I think some of the things we did right were putting aside, like there's definitely changes that if it was up to me, I would be making to JobKeeper, but I would be keeping a form of JobKeeper in place, particularly you know when it's times when you're experiencing lockdown. Um, the job seeker amount, I mean, it's an absolute disgrace that it's sitting at just over $40 a day and a whole proportion of our our community is, is living in abject poverty. Um, so they're things that definitely need to be to be fixed because they were 
things that, that were done. And, you know, when the political appetite was there, that support was there. But then when things shifted, what we saw instead was tax cuts being given to people who had jobs and were doing fine. And instead that support was taken away from people who needed it. So that would be my first point. I think then um, some of the things we also learned during times like lockdown were that need for things like food provision um, and emergency food relief, etc. But noting again, if we've got the right supports in place, we don't necessarily need that in the same way. So when we see the support taken away, we see community organisations just get kind of crunched for support for the reason that people don't have that cushion there in terms of support. So I think there's sort of there are overarching pieces around that income support because we know if you've got that, it's genuinely, you know, people can access it. There was a stark divide. So if I look back to last year and I look at international students, the fact that they were excluded from JobKeeper and a whole lot of other income support that others could access, we saw the desperation that they experienced compared to people who had income support and the difference was stark. I too um, hope that we will learn from from this, you know, what maybe, you know, what's not going right this time round in Victoria um, compared to last year and hopefully if any other city experiences what we're going through right now that we might take some of those lessons and thanks so much for um, being on Triple R, Emma. Oh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Likewise. Have a great day. You too. Um, VCOS CEO Emma King. And um, look, they have actually a whole heap of information on their website, uh, not just on these issues, but also on accessing the vaccine. And I just think, um, you know, we didn't go into that too much, but their role in advocating and thinking through access to the vaccine for our most vulnerable is also really stellar. So if you want to have information on that, um, definitely head to the VCOS website. And to apply for, for one of those payments, uh, the federal government announced as well. You can go to the Services Australia website where um, all the details are there. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Last week marked the 32nd anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre in Beijing. Each year prompts a new round of reflections on the events and China's efforts to suppress the truth. But there's an added sharpness to commemorations this year with the recent imposition of a new national security law in Hong Kong, effectively ending the one country, two systems model, and growing concerns about the media's access to the country after the two remaining Australian journalists were forced home last September. To talk about this, we're joined by journalist Trevor Watson. He was there in 1989 as a correspondent for the ABC. He's also co-editor of a new book, The Beijing Bureau, which brings together uh, 25 essays from Australian correspondents who have reported on China's rise. And it's uh, great to have you on Triple R. Trevor, welcome. Good morning. Let's start with Tiananmen Square back in 1989. I wonder if you can set the scene for us about what it was like in the lead up to those events. It was uh, a lead-up that was absolutely exhausting. The protests went on for weeks and weeks before the government cracked down on June 4th uh, in 1989. Uh, A a senior leader, uh, a uh, liberal-leaning leader in the party, Hu Yaobang, had died in May, and the young students saw this as an opportunity uh, to uh, let their feelings be known uh, about the, uh, the the running of the country at that point. Uh, they were joined over a matter of weeks by uh, workers uh, from all walks of life, indeed workers who, who worked directly for the Communist Party, journalists from the, the People's Daily, 
uh, joined in the protests uh, in the weeks that followed Hu Yaobang's funeral. And uh, by, well, early June, uh, there were millions of people uh, who uh, had been protesting. The protests started to die away a little bit. They started to run out of steam in the first couple of days uh, of June uh, until uh, June the 3rd, uh, the early hours of the morning of June 3rd, uh, and uh, the um, the government uh, again inflamed the situation by sending uh, a, a, a couple of battalions of young, uh, inexperienced, poorly trained, uh, unarmed soldiers in Tiananmen Square. Now, of course, they were very easily fought back uh, by the few remaining demonstrators that were occupying the square. Uh, they were had the shoes hurled at them and bottles and all sorts of things uh, thrown at them. Uh, when I got to the square in the early hours of June 3rd, uh, there were young soldiers sitting in the gutter crying uh, over the way they'd been treated. But the government's action uh, in sending those young troops into the square on June 3rd ensured a very, very large and very angry crowd uh, came out in Beijing uh, later on in that day and, of course, in the early hours of June 4th. Uh, as we know, the government sent the tanks in uh, with uh, well-armed troops uh, who were prepared to just slaughter their way uh, into Tiananmen Square. The, the government had taken, I believe, had taken action uh, in that way, that is by provoking the protesters and then cracking down on the protesters because there's an old adage in China that goes, sometimes it's necessary uh, to kill a chicken in order to scare a monkey. And the government wanted plenty of people on the streets of Beijing when it did... Uh, take action uh, to, uh, again, uh, deliver a message right across the country that it was in control and would not brook uh, any kind of political dissent. I mean, when you were posted in in China in 1988, Trevor, I mean, I, I can't can't imagine that you thought that you would ever be reporting on, on uh, as you just described then, what became a, a slaughter there in Tiananmen Square, because when you, when you first arrived, you were actually able to travel more freely and, re and report from the country, I understand. Yes, indeed. Uh, it was a very different country. The country that I arrived in in 1988 and covered for the first 12 months was very different from my second year uh, there. Uh, it was a country that was opening up to the outside world. Uh, there were more freedoms than the people had enjoyed uh, for a, a long time. Uh, of course, there were still issues. There were issues in Tibet. Uh, there were economic problems. Inflation was out of control. There were serious corruption problems that the government uh, couldn't get a, a handle on. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it, was a, it was a positive story. Uh, the country was opening up to the outside world. It was a story full of novelty. Uh, we interviewed, for example, China's first dollar millionaire. Of course, there are now more billionaires in Beijing than there are anywhere else in the world. But we interviewed in 1988 the country's first uh, a million dollar millionaire. Uh, it was there was uh, Maxine's, the uh, the French uh, restaurant chain, opened in Beijing. That was another novelty story. It was positive. It was China opening up to the outside world. Of course, the second year was one of repression. The government left the people with no doubt uh, that while they were to enjoy or could enjoy uh, economic freedoms, uh, there was to be no political freedom whatsoever. 
and the second year was one of, uh, of crackdowns, of people being shot, of, of um, mass executions. There were mass trials uh, and, and there were mass arrests, of course. And we saw last year with the last two journalists working for Australian news outlets, Mike Smith and Bill Bertels, who were flown back to Australia um, really sort of under the safeguard of um, uh, Canberra's Beijing embassy and, and Australian diplomats working very hard to make sure that they would be safe. You write in your contribution to uh, this new book, The Beijing Bureau, about your involvement with the Beijing embassy in uh, the aftermath of the Tiananmen Square massacre. What was it like for you in terms of your reporting at that time? Did you feel at all constrained or limited in what kind of story you could tell about what had gone on? No, I felt, uh, I, I was concerned, yes, that there could be uh, a time when the, the government would start cracking down on the Western media, and it was a little bit concerned about the reporting by the American media. But I think that generally uh, the Chinese government, uh, the Communist Party, really didn't care what we were saying. Uh, that the, the party was very, very concerned about its authority internally, and it's it's focus uh, was internal. Uh, what we, the other barbarians, what Australians were hearing really didn't matter. What mattered was that the party was under threat and the, that threat had to be dealt with. What we were saying, I don't think, uh, really mattered very much at all. I will say, though, that during that period, in the lead-up to June 4th, uh, when the the, the government, the country at times didn't seem to have any government at all. Uh, we were relying very heavily uh, on the Australian Embassy and others uh, for insights into what was going on within the party. And uh, the Australian Embassy became a magnet, if you like, not only for Australian journalists, but for, for journalists around the world. Uh, um, the Australian Embassy seemed to, or was seen, by Americans, Brits, French, Germans, Australians, as being the most uh, reliable uh, source uh, of information, at least from that diplomatic quarter. Gee, sounds very different to today and on so many levels. Trevor, I mean, have you watched China yourself through the ensuing years since, since over, the, over the past 32 years to just sort of see how that shift has happened? I mean, I can't imagine at the moment the Australian embassy in, in China would, would play that role, but certainly you write about um, the Australian embassy and, and diplomats at the time be evacuating dissidents um, even. Indeed. Uh, the Australian uh, embassy staff really, for all of the criticism uh, that, uh, that they, they cop in the media and so on, around the world I think they do a pretty good job. And with no fanfare, with no public uh, uh, announcements, they were actually cruising the streets uh, in the early hours of June 4th picking up prominent dissidents and taking them uh, to safety in the embassy and eventually getting them out uh, of uh, China uh, on uh, evacuation flights. So the role played by the uh, Australian embassy uh, was uh, really quite significant. I've been travelling to and from China uh, since 1979. Uh, I was in China just before COVID uh, the last time. Uh, and, of course, as you say, it has changed enormously. Uh, it, for the Chinese people, if you're not a Uyghur, 
uh, if you're not if you don't belong to an ethnic minority, if uh, you're not a dissident, if you don't want to change the political system, life now for the average Chinese person is probably better than it's ever been in history. The government to stay in power has put a lot of effort into raising the standard of living. And when I lived there, people would aspire to owning a bicycle. Now they aspire to, to owning an investment flat or a uh, or a second motor car. We're speaking with Trevor Watson, ABC China correspondent from 1988 to 1990, talking about his experience reporting on the Tiananmen Square massacre and also a book he's co-edited, The Beijing Bureau, uh, 25 Australian Correspondents Reporting China's Rise. And Trevor, I wonder, thinking about how the Tiananmen Square massacre is commemorated today, 32 years on, I mean, we saw in Hong Kong there was a very strong police presence around Victoria Park where there's traditional been a very strong presence from the public, uh, you know, remembering what happened. What is the significance of the events today? And, and I guess, how do you imagine uh, the memorialisation of that event going forward, given the, the huge power that China has today and will have into the future? Indeed, it, the fact that we're talking about this 32 years on, uh, many of your listeners uh, would not have been born at that time, indicates just what a turning point it was in the world's view of China and the world's focus on China. I think that we will continue uh, talking about this uh, for a good many years to come. Uh, in Hong Kong and in China itself, uh, the people, young people, um, are not even aware uh, that it happened. Uh, and, of course, uh, the, the crackdown in, in Hong Kong means that there's no commemoration there. Uh, and the Chinese government will not ever brook uh, any commemoration or recognition of the event in, uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, and, again, it doesn't really care what we think of that uh, or what the rest of the world thinks. What it cares about uh, is its own authority. It's, it's afraid of that authority uh, being challenged. So I can't see any shift. Uh, in the way that uh, that we remember uh, these events in the years to come. We will continue to rem remember them, uh, but the, the Chinese people won't be allowed to. I mean, the book that you, um, that the Beijing Bureau book, I mean, I've read so many of the articles in it and we spoke with Stan Grant who contributed, um, we spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. And I, I guess I'm, I'm interested in what's your sense of Australian media companies being able to place people back in China to report from China. I mean, I know so many would consider that, you know, fundamental that we have people on the ground there. But what, what, what can you see, when can you see that changing, changing back, Trevor? Well, I'm not sure. I've, I think that uh, the Beijing government will eventually have Australians uh, back in, in China. There will come a point uh, where uh, this uh, current strain in relations is, uh, pass, passes into history. I think that um, there will come a point perhaps when the, uh, the Australian government will say something particularly nice and uh, the, the Chinese leadership will say, uh, Australia has learned its lesson uh, and uh, all is well. Uh, and uh, we, we will be allowed to have uh, correspondence uh, there again. Indeed, I'm not sure that it will be very long before this is tested and, and we'll have, uh, you know, media companies applying for visas uh, for journalists. It'll be interesting to see when that happens. 
Um, but uh, it is absolutely essential that Australia does have uh, reporters on the ground uh, covering developments in China, covering the issues, covering the events uh, when China has such an enormous role uh, to play in Australia's own uh, future and in the future of the entire region. And we can understand why it might be particularly important for Australia to have journalists on the ground and, and have you know independent, rigorous reporting from China to give us um, audiences in Australia a good understanding of what's happening. But do you think that China also loses out by not having foreign journalists, such as Australian journalists, on the ground uh, kind of reporting on what's happening, but also allowing uh, audiences abroad to have a better sense of the country and how it actually functions? You're absolutely right. I think China does miss out. Uh, I think that uh, reporters on the ground are able to provide much more nuanced uh, coverage. We're able to deal with the people. We're able to see uh, progress. We're able to see uh, an increase in the standard of living. And uh, we're uh, able to see developments in the, in the lives of the Chinese people themselves. A lot of those developments are very positive, and we can report those. At the moment, we can't do that. Uh, all we, we can report on is, and it tends to be, the negative side uh, of, uh, of, of China's uh, role in the world. And I think China does miss out. But I think you've got to look at it from the way that they think, the way, the way that Xi Jinping thinks. And I think that if you were to ask him, he'd say China's probably better off not, not having that um, uncontrolled scrutiny. Uh, from Western correspondents, and uh, I'm sure that he'd be very happy to deal uh, with the outside world by way of press releases. Well, it's been so great having your insights this morning on Triple R, Trevor. Um, congratulations on the book and, um, and all the you. best. Thank you very much. Thanks, Trevor. Trevor Watson there, ABC China correspondent from 1988 to 1990, which, of course, means he was there during the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, really interesting perspectives there. And you can read more about Australians reporting on China's rise in the new book um, that he's co-edited, along with Melissa Roberts, called The Beijing Bureau. Triple ah. And for many years, successive Australian governments have sought to square the circle of Australia's public commitment to East Timorese self-determination with the reality of its support for Indonesia's annexation of that country. Peter Jobs' book, A Narrative of Denial, Australia and the Indonesia Violation of East Timor, seeks to advance our understanding of this important history. Peter was involved in the East Timor support movement during the Indonesian occupation, including working on the radio link to Fretland in 1978. He has a PhD in international and political studies from the University of New South Wales in and um, congrats on your book there, Peter, and uh, thanks for being available to speak on Triple R. Thanks very much for having me. And it feels important that you have used the word narrative in the title of your book. I guess it'd be interesting to hear from you or for the listeners to hear from you. Um, what are those narratives that successive Australian governments have run when it comes to its policies towards East Timor? Well, first of all, I call it a narrative of denial because that's exactly what it was. Uh, Australia felt a need to support the Sahata regime um, in terms of its because of its strategic um, policy goals and for other reasons, including uh, use of Timor Sea resources. Uh, however, that put it in a conflict with how it presented itself to the world. Because Australia wished to present itself as a responsible international uh, citizen that. Um, 
respected international laws, and it was actually active in criticizing human rights abuses elsewhere. Uh, if it had acknowledged the reality of the catastrophe that was occurring in East Timor in the years covered by my book, which is 1975 to 1983, it would have ha had to have been critical of the Tahata regime. It therefore produced a narrative that it used uh, uh, with the Australian uh, community and in the international community as well to deny what was happening uh, in East Timor. Uh, that had three principal elements to it. First of all, it involved a distorted narrative uh, about the events leading to the invasion. Um, Indonesia was very, very active in destabilising the decolonisation process before the invasion and creating the uh, circumstances uh, uh, under which it was felt justified to invade. Um, Australia depicted uh, the period leading to the invasion as a civil war between Timorese. It was not. It was a, a war of clandestine intervention of Indonesian troops pretending to be Timorese. Uh, and that, uh, they used that to, to make the Indonesian invasion appear more justifiable, dishonestly. Secondly, uh, when uh, uh, evidence started to emerge that there really was a humanitarian catastrophe, and I can tell you as an activist at the time, there was strong evidence of what was happening, the Australian government denied it. It, it denied it in the uh, United Nations. It divided, uh, denied it in other aspects of the international community, uh, and it denied it to the Australian people. Uh, as events progressed, it became in increasingly difficult to deny it completely. Uh, even foreign ambassadors from the United States, Canada and other countries who visited were, were seeing that a catastrophe was happening. Australia didn't, didn't bring that to the, the world's attention, but, the, but other ambassadors did. When that happened, Australia responded with a narrative that um, removed complicity from Indonesian actions. They denied that there was a major military operation of encirclement and annihilation taking place, and it attributed it to um, Timor's uh, natural poverty. Uh, incorrectly, because even though Timor had always been poor, it had not experienced a level of famine and deprivation caused by the Indonesian intervention. And Peter, you've gone back to the Foreign Affairs Archives in the course of researching this book, and you write about how there you know, were, were many, including those from the Department of Foreign Affairs and some Labor MPs at the time of the Whitlam government who did not support an Indonesian takeover. And indeed, on the opposition side, um, Foreign Minister, a Shadow Foreign Minister, I should say, Andrew Peacock, wasn't uh, endorsing uh, Indonesian takeover when they were in opposition. I wonder what you learned about the nature of machinations within government and how the narrative that you've just outlined emerged, given that there was some dissension and um, some consternation and debate, I suppose, from within government about what the best course of action would be? Well, in the initial uh, period, it was uh, there, 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 there was dissent. Andrew Peacock is an interesting uh, figure in this because uh, when he was opposition leader, he supported... Uh, uh, a proper self-determination uh, process. When he became foreign minister, he changed completely and supported the Indonesian position and the uh, position that was advocated by the department. Uh, a strong uh, element of this was Whitlam himself. Uh, Whitlam is a person who I greatly admire in many ways. I wouldn't have been able to go to university without him, but in this, he was firmly set on supporting an Indonesian um, annexation. As you say, uh, initially there were people within the department that, that thought that the best approach would be to accept um, a, 
a process of self-determination. There were others who were strongly opposed to it. Uh, those who strongly supported Indonesian annexation gained the upper hand largely because of the support of Whitlam. Now, of course, that doesn't, didn't mean that, that was the end of it. Uh, within the Labor Party, there were many who disagreed with Whitlam, and within the Liberal Party as well. There were some key um, Liberal members and senators who, did not agree, who, who were aware of the situation and brought it to light in Parliament. Um, this was not... A, uh, it, the position of those supporting integration with Indonesia was not evidence-based. They called themselves the realist, yet they did not have... Uh, a realist um, understanding or a realistic understanding of, of the reality of what was happening in East Timor or indeed the reality of the Indonesian relationship. Um, they largely accepted Indonesian claims at face value where there was ample evidence that what they were being told was not correct. Um, they uh, were dismissive of people who were campaigning uh, and trying to bring the real situation to the attention of the, of the public, accusing them of being ill-informed, when in fact the, the, the uh, opposite was the case. So, yeah, I mean, I, and how long did the sort of um, that sort of policy, I guess, which seemed to it will start with the Whitlam government, as you explain in the book, and then continue through the Fraser government? When, if ever, did that sort of end Peter like or, or you know how have we ever seen really this this narrative of denial um, ever cease even with you know John Howard and the Interfet forces I mean you know really um, Australia speaks about its role in supporting East Timorese independence now and 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 yet, I, I guess in your book you, you spell out that that really is recognition that the Australian policies towards East Timor and the, and the Indonesian invasion and occupation really showed a clear failure of Australian government policies in the ensuing years. Well, that's actually a very good question because in a way the narrative to has, has not completely stopped. Australia has not acknowledged the very important role that it played. And the role that it played was that of propagandist in the international arena. Uh, Australia was regarded by countries around the world as being a democratic country that respected human rights and that was the, uh, the second closest country uh, to East Timor and therefore in a position uh, to be knowledgeable about it. They misused that position of trust uh, to do everything they could to keep the Timor issue off the international agenda, uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, deny in, at the United Nations and to other countries that sought information from them what was really happening, and to protect the Saharto regime. Without that, it, yeah, there's two things that would have been likely. First of all, it's likely the occupation would not have lasted, that, that uh, the situation would have been more known to the world and that there could have been an earlier rather than a later change and that would have saved many lives. The other side of the thing that it did is it prevented at one stage uh, uh, the, the pressure from the international... The sufficient pressure of the international community would have led to the earlier entry of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Uh, that did not finally happen until 1980, until after many lives had been lost. Uh, and that was partly because of the uh, situation uh, in the United Nations of, Australia, of countries being misinformed about the real situation. 
uh, principally by Indonesia, but also very importantly by Australia. Uh, Australia's denial uh, and backing up of the Indonesian disinformation campaign uh, gave it credibility that it would have not otherwise have obtained. Yeah, and you you sort of say that, you know, that narrative, the other couple of narratives, and there's a lot of them actually you outline in this book, that, that, you know... Well, Australia has no influence. You know, we couldn't have influenced it anyway type narrative. And what we did was the only choice. And you reject this in in your book. I do reject it. And I think I've produced quite a lot of evidence uh, that that is wrong. The Indonesians didn't even say that themselves. Suharto, from a very early stage, said that, that they were very concerned about the Australian position. And I should also say, initially, uh, the Indonesian uh, government was split on the issue. Adam Malik, who was the foreign minister at the time, was very concerned that an an Indonesian intervention would damage Indonesia's position in the international community, uh, including in the non-aligned movement, which it was a founder of and in which it sought a lead role. So he was disposed to supporting a process of self-determination. the Timorese themselves, uh, the political parties, wanted good relations with Indonesia. They did not want to be belligerent to it. Um, there were other hardliners within the Indonesian uh, 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 regime, the OPSIS group, who wanted to force integration and use any means to do so. And they were very ruthless and they, uh, in doing so. They've been very ruthless previously, both, both in West Papua and in 1965 and 1966. Those were the ones, the hardliners, the ward party, that Australia decided to cultivate. Um, Sahato himself acknowledged that Australia's position was very strong and the evidence is that there was a cultivation, the links that Australia decided to to um, make with with the hardliners that tipped Sahato in the direction of their position rather than that of the more moderate position of Adam Malik in the foreign ministry. We're speaking with Peter Job all about his book, A Narrative of Denial, Australia and the Indonesian Violation of East Timor. And I wonder if you could spell us, uh, spell out for us, Peter, just, I suppose, what was motivating Australia in its actions um, in the period that you're focusing on from 1975 and the years afterwards? Because you've sort of mentioned strategic interests and if we think about Australia's uh, relationship with East Timor today, a large part of that has been covered by... Um, negotiations over, you know, oil and gas fields in the Timor Sea, for example. And, um, you know, of course, there's the persecution of of Witness K and Bernard Caleri as all part of that uh, very complex history between Australia and post-independent East Timor. But what was it that was motivating Australia to side with and, um, as you argue, encourage Indonesia to uh, annex East Timor in 75? multi-dimensional. There's been a lot of talk about the Timor Sea, and as I say in my book, that was an important issue. Um, however, it was also the uh, Australia's uh, position within the region. Remember that this was a time uh, when there was a, a fear of insurgent communism. Vietnam had just become unified and the Vietnam War had ended. Laos and Cambodia had just become uh, communist countries. In that context, uh, the, uh, the Sahato regime was seen and it was actually described as a moderate and responsible government. Now, I don't think it was because it killed millions of its own citizens and not only in East Timor, but that was how it was viewed in Australia as a bulwark for Australia's strategic interests. Australia also wanted to uh, 
increase its influence in the region uh, and it wanted to reach out to ASEAN. And the largest and the closest ASEAN nation was the Fahata regime. So it was considered very important uh, to that uh, those policy objectives, and that's why they uh, prioritised the relationship above the human rights of those of the, and indeed the lives of the Timorese people. Uh, of course, there was also the Timorese issue, and that was uh, the Timor Sea issue, the issue of the Timorese resources. There's some evidence of that going way back to the 60s, uh, well before the invasion, that they, they had an interest. At the invasion, it is mentioned in documents as, a, as basically as a secondary reason that was supporting uh, Australian policy in the, in the direction it was already going. Uh, the shift from to recognition of Indonesian, well, Australia shifted to what they call de facto recognition of Indonesian sovereignty in 1978 and de jure international sovereignty, which is full recognition, uh, in 1979. And... Uh, one of the factors that certainly predicated that was the uh, was the desire to reach an agreement on Timor Sea oil resources. Um, I don't agree with some who say that Timor Sea was the primary motivation. Some people have said that recently. I believe it was strategic uh, interests that were the primary motivation, uh, supported by that also other important issue of uh, Timor Sea resources. I mean, as I'm sure listeners can hear um, in your responses to our questions, Peter, um, this book is incredibly well referenced and, and the evidence that you bring forth is, is compelling, really. And I guess it's even, I mean, it, you know, even though it is evidence-based, you do have this personal connection to this story as well and I, I suppose an, an investment in this history being better understood. I wonder, you know, take, taking us back to when you were involved with, you know, getting messages out, helping get messages messages out of East Timor. Was that a risky thing to be doing those days in Darwin when you were involved with with that back then? It was risky uh, for some people, more for some people than others. I should explain, there were people who were in the bush who were transmitting to East Timor uh, and receiving the messages. My role wasn't that. I was on a secondary receiving post because they couldn't come in to deliver messages. I was simply recording the messages, taking them to my old friend and comrade Brian Manning in the Waterside Waiters Federation, who would send them down to Dennis Freeney in Sydney, who would then pass them on to Jose Ramos Horta in New York and the uh, Petland External Headquarters in Mozambique. So my situation wasn't particularly uh, dangerous compared to that of some, although we, we certainly were under scrutiny um, uh, during that period. And looking at all the the research you've undertaken as part of this book and, and I suppose what you've uncovered in terms of the, the government decision-making, both the Whitlam government and Fraser government that came after in relation to um, Indonesia's uh, invasion and occupation of East Timor, are there any more general, uh, I guess, um, messages or, or, or takeaways that we can learn from the ways in which Australian foreign policy functions that I suppose we might be able to you know, extract from this uh, how Australia behaves in the world more generally? Well, I think we've got to, got to let go of the myth that Australian um, foreign policy always functions in a, in a professional and evidence-based manner, because it certainly did not in this case. Um, 
those who were arguing for supporting Indonesia were claiming that they were the realists, and they've been proved to be exactly the opposite. And that doesn't uh, is not only in light of what's happened since the end of the occupation and East Timorese independence, but what was happening at the time. They were not informed. Uh, about the, the reality of the political uh, situation in East Timor, and they didn't want to know because it didn't suit their policy grounds. They did not uh, undertake um, measured consideration of the evidence. Uh, they were in constant consultations with um, the Indonesians who provided them quite graphic details uh, before the invasion about what they were going to do, so they were well informed about that. The Indonesians also gave them disinformation, which Australians did not question. Um, you could say that in many ways the Indonesian uh, hardliners, the officers group, ran rings around the Australian, um, the Jakarta embassy. Now, of course, that was partly because uh, the, uh, the Jakarta embassy was quite happy for them to do so. It was what they, it was in line with their policy goals. But they they, they were not professional. Uh, the use of evidence was not professional. Uh, they did not subject information coming from the Indonesians to proper scrutiny. They did not prioritise um, hum the humanitarian needs of the Timorese people, or indeed their legitimate and it was legitimate claims to national independence. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us, Peter. And, um, and yeah, we really commend this book to people. Um, it's a part of history that we must know about. And it is, of course, a very live and important relationship um, to us personally, but, you know, to, to between the countries of Australia and East Timor as well. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Peter Job, author uh, of A Narrative of Denial, Australia and the Indonesian Violation of East Timor. And it's available now. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.